Hello, everyone, and welcome to Semester 2, Episode 3 of Just Admit It, where former deans and directors of admission give insight into the complex higher ed landscape. My name is McGregor. I'm an Ivy Wise Medical School Admissions Counselor, uh, former director of selection at MIT, um, and was on the Harvard Medical School Admissions Committee uh, and was a pre-medical advisor at MIT. I loved that job. Uh, and um, joining me today is my friend and and uh, fellow Ivy Wise colleague, Jun, who is a, mem- a former MD admissions officer at Stanford and uh, pre-medical advisor at UC Berkeley, um, two of my favorite schools to send undergrads to. Uh, in this episode, we are going to take a deep dive into the medical school admissions process and discuss what admissions committees are looking for when evaluating applicants. And so with that, uh, Jun, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, McGregor. I'm glad to be here. Hello, everyone. And uh, I hope over the the next hour we can cover, um, I'd say, a pretty good deal of material. Um, Between you and me, I feel we have both sides of the fence, uh, including if you go way back in my life being an applicant a long time ago. Um, And uh, I hope that for the audience, the contributions that we can uh, we can give are related to uh, not just necessarily what you can do right in this process, but also uh, our experience and our knowledge of the, the things that can go wrong, both from a counseling perspective and from an admissions officer's perspective. Um, and I think one of the very pertinent things as well that I'm hoping to cover today is related to um, the impact of coronavirus on uh, the applicant pool, which if you've been paying attention to medical school admissions has been an insane influence. So we we'll have plenty of time to go in that today. So um, it's enough of me talking. Jun, um, can you give us just a little bit of an idea about um, uh, like the perspective that you're bringing to counseling for uh, pre-medical students? Uh, sure. I, I'm probably one of the few people um, that have worked both sides of the table, so to speak. I've been in admissions for medical school at Stanford Medical and uh, also pre-med, pre-health advising at Berkeley, as you mentioned earlier. So um, I understand the anxieties. I think that a lot of applicants have or prospective applicants as they're thinking about pursuing a career in medicine. Uh, And then on the other hand, I I see like some of the mistakes or challenges that uh, applicants have shared in their application uh, with the admissions committee. So I have a good, I think I feel like I have a really good sense overall of both sides um, as a current applicant and a prospective applicant um, and the challenges and concerns that uh, they have as they're preparing to apply to medical school. Excellent. I think I feel like the um, uh, involved in the counseling and advising process is a good deal of empathy. And uh, if anything, the the admission being on the admission side, you see so many really wonderful candidates out there and you you end up having to say no to so many of them. And uh, I I think there's a perception of, of, you know, being pretty cold hearted admissions officers. But in reality, it's really painful. I mean, it's it's a blessing that there's so many exceptional candidates, but it's um, it's really difficult, I feel, to hone that um, that that giant mound of potential down to those candidates that you're going to end up offering admission to. Is that is that your take, too? 
Oh yeah, that's that's true. Um, I do want to say uh, for for applicants that I know it sometimes might feel that once you submit your application, it's just a machine on the other side that takes care of it, everything. But um, I just want to share that it is uh, individuals, human beings, uh, people that want to see applicants um, in the process as much as possible. Um, I, I think everybody knows applying to medical school is a very competitive process, and it's not simply, and I know this is um, your experience as well, McGregor, it's not as simple as grades and MCAT scores. I think if if it was really that simple, there would be a computer that could fill a class. It doesn't need me and you to assist applicants to do that, but that's not um, what the career is looking for. You know, you're pursuing a helping career. And I think you, you want to demonstrate that you have this interest and it's a genuine interest in helping others. And I think for medical school or a medical profession, um, maybe one of the things you want to do your best to convey is what's really unique about being a physician that you could not find the same satisfaction in other helping careers, such as being a counselor or a firefighter or a minister. These are all helping careers, but what is it about being that um, is really unique to you and really drives your passion? I think those are those are very excellent words and a great introduction as well to um, kind of walking through the the applicant pathway too, um, because through over the course of many years of uh, undergraduate and sometimes postgraduate preparation, uh, the applicant is going to need to really demonstrate in in many ways all of the the, the excellent points that you covered. So um, I thought we could do is uh, we could do some vocabulary building and. Mm-hmm. Um, some like process building. And as I tell my students, you know, the, you are very unique and awesome, but uh, the application process for the most part is uh, applicable to pretty much everyone. And no matter how awesome you are, you have to abide by the application requirements. And so um, my take is that things start much earlier than, than people anticipate them uh, to begin. And um, preferably like my ideal kind of counseling and advising takes starts in, in freshman year of, of college. I think before that's a little a little weird and a little little uh, 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 couldn't, couldn't, like too much tight tight control over an academic trajectory. But um, typically if I have a uh, if I have my druthers, I would I would probably start advising kids in their first year of college. And sometimes what that means is uh, you know we follow them all the way through the application process until their acceptance to medical school. But sometimes what it also entails is is a student kind of finding herself and saying, you know, I used to like medicine. I like many things about it, but it's not the career that I'm looking for. And I feel that there's a, a you know, value in the negative there and saying, excellent. I'm glad that you came to this conclusion. Let's find some really awesome opportunities for you. But for the most part, we tend to work with kids who, who are, I would say, pretty set in their understanding of where their career trajectory is going. Um, and again, starting very early. And so um, I, I kind of break down the early advising into, um, um, uh, 
let's say four different spheres. So my way of, of, uh, of guiding kids is to say, you you know, you, you need to a focus on academics. And that means like what, uh, not necessarily what choice of major you have, but, um, but uh, ensuring that by the time you graduate, um, uh, you've done a pretty good investigation of your pre-medical prerequisites, and then also achieving kind of academic success in, in those, uh, in those classes. Um, I also talk with students about um, research. It's a huge thing, I feel, um, just because so much uh, of, of modern medicine is uh, based on clinicians doing some element of research or, or at least integrating existing research into their practice. Um, speaking as a practicing clinician, that's very important for me. Um, and then um, uh, I talk with students as well about leadership development and um, how how are they going to do things that are going to um, uh, help them to grow as an advocate or a leader in their school or in their community? Um, and then um, the final thing is probably one of the most important things. It's not like these are like ranked. I'd say GPA is pretty much the the the, the, the king or queen of all of this. But um, but one of the the most important things and sometimes most overlooked things is our clinical experiences for students. And so I try to help them when I'm first meeting them understand that these are very important uh, uh, long-term investments for them and integrated into their college or immediate postgraduate experience. This is, this is like the meat that they are putting on uh, their application and the experiences from which they draw uh, whenever they apply to medical school and whenever they interview. And then there's this kind of like fifth, much smaller sphere in terms of time commitment, and that's the MCAT test. So that's a, that's a longitudinal experience. I, uh, I, I feel that those four other things are, are, are pretty primary. It's important that you do well on your MCAT, um, but uh, uh, those those four other areas for me are, are so substantial. So from your perspective, Jen, coming from um, uh, pretty recently from the medical school admission side, um, can you help us to uh, understand those four or five things and like what your, what the admissions officer and how they evaluate those? Sure. I, I think um, uh, part of the um, evaluating one's application is the idea of context. Um, I, I think it's important for applicants to understand that applications are not compared apple to apple. Um, there is no way uh, I could compare an application from maybe a parent who's applying to medical school the same way as someone who might be 21, 22, 21 or 22 years old. Obviously, they're not married or have a family. Um, you just can't compare the two the same. So I have to understand the context of their educational experiences. So um, grades are certainly important, and so are MCAT scores. But again, um, I have to understand why one's MCAT might uh, might not have been as high as the average or same thing with their GPA. And if I'm seeing that it had to work 25, 30 hours a week um, in order to be their children or whatever the case may be, that's understandable. Um, I think admissions folks would know that if they had more time to dedicate to studying or something like that, perhaps the GPA and MCAT score would be higher. So I, I think that's one thing uh, a lot of applicants don't always consider 
is that we in admissions consider the context of one's educational experiences as we're reviewing the application. Um, there are um, medical schools also that um, I think, what is the term again, weed out uh, just upon that initial uh, review based on GPA and MCAT. And um, in my experiences, having talked to de various deans of admissions over the years, they did say to uh, students at UC Berkeley, if you ever received an email indicating that you were not invited to complete a supplementary application, um, contact our office, let us know the, that you received this information, and I'll go ahead and take a look at your application and decide whether or not to um, invite you to complete a supplementary application. Because they understand that it was um, basically the computer making a decision and the computer obviously cannot understand the context of why one's GPA was lower than somebody else or their threshold for that medical school. So that's important. I, I like the idea that, um, it is important, if you can, to come in sooner than later uh, for pre-med, pre-medical advising. Um, I think in the past, and, and I think this really has to do with UC Berkeley being a very huge institution, um, we weren't always able to, uh, or I wasn't able to meet with uh, first-year maybe even second year students, because the amount of students that I was speaking to uh, were primarily juniors and seniors um, getting ready to apply to med school. And my understanding, and I doubt if it's changed, but within the University of California, UC Berkeley and UCLA, I believe, are the two campuses that have the most med school applicants every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's roughly like 500 uh, per campus. And that wasn't just pre-med students I was uh, meeting with. I was also meeting with students interested in nursing, dentistry, pharmacy, other allied health programs. So um, if you can, especially if you're going to or you attend, a college that's much uh, more intimate, I think, in terms of uh, not as institutionalized or huge institutions like Berkeley. It'd be a great idea if you could connect with your with us um, earlier on uh, to help navigate, help you navigate with um, the different experiences. Um, you know, the idea of like clinical experiences, I don't want to make it sound like it's not important, but in a lot of ways for admissions folks, we, we really couldn't um, distinguish the difference between volunteering at one hospital versus another. And I think there's also the ins insurance limitations mm -hmm. for age and things of that nature. So those, those type of experiences I felt were more important for the individual. So going back to what I originally said, helping them to determine why medicine, uh, why it's important. So being able to observe, shadow, whatever the case may be, what a physician does on a daily basis versus a firefighter or who, you know, whoever in another helping profession would be important. 
But uh, certainly research, and especially at schools like Stanford that are top tier medical schools, the vast majority of individuals who applied and were accepted did have research experience, primarily, you know, in a laboratory. But I do want to say that it does not have to always be in a laboratory. So, for example, you have an individual whose experience in the lab might be cleaning test tubes <laughs> or, you know, making sure that there was enough equipment available. And that was really the role uh, versus an applicant who may have been a sociology major. And they did research on action between men and women. And they were the lead research person. They ended up being a co-author on a um on the research, um, that's pretty impressive. So I just wanna share with everybody that it doesn't always have to be science related uh, or in a laboratory, but I think, um, and, and it makes sense if you're pursuing medicine, there's always that um, background in science that has always interested a, a, an applicant to med school. So it's very natural. For, for an applicant to um, stay in that area versus sociology or any other types of research. Yeah, I, I, I hear everything you say and I echo it. I think uh, one of the good challenges I've had is um, uh, working with kids who um, they say, you know, in college, my, my primary academic interest, we'll, we'll use your sociology example, is sociology. And so uh, I don't see myself in a, a like a, a wet bench research yeah. uh, group. And I said, that's perfectly fine. I don't think people would expect that. Um, there, I think there is a, a, a almost a misperception out there that the research that you you do has to be anchored in like a test tube and cell culture and you know things like that um and really it's the kind of the meaningful long-term in-depth engagement with the academic material outside the classroom that i feel is is the, the metric here is that are, are you doing it yes um what's your level of involvement uh what's the length and the depth of your involvement as well and what types of contributions has the research provided to you as an individual? And so um, I think that's that's a fun problem to address is because uh, it, it, A, is the, the research is, is, is a huge thing. And B, um, people feel these perceptions must, must direct them towards a specific type of research. So um, I, I have, uh, I, I enjoy like, I enjoy working with the younger kids simply because the, you know, this is like, you can, you can start to kind of puncture these balloons and say, this is like, let's not move down this pathway of, of thinking because I want you to really pick an undergraduate major that you feel is in, is like worthwhile and enjoyable. I can't tell you how many kids I've talked to who say, you know, should I major in biology? And I'm like, do you like biology? They're like, eh, but you know, I feel like medical schools would want me to do that. And I say that if your heart is not in biology, um, and it, you're in the middle of a lab and you don't like it, uh, are you still going to, you know, put your all into the effort? And, and it, the answer is typically no. And so, but I say, if you're like into sociology and you're in the middle of this, like really interesting exercise, uh, are you going to be able to put your heart into the effort? I'm like, yes. And I'm like, well, that's excellent. So sociology sounds like a great major for you. What we need to do then is, and this is why working with you early on is so much, so much easier is to then look at your four year calendar 
um, and ensure that you have the opportunity to a see what your school's pre-medical prerequisites are map those prerequisites to kind of like what are medical schools actually looking for so this is sort of like a validation step and then um, and then plan for those and so you have to do well in both your pre-medical prerequisites and in your major and at the end of the day I feel that you're on pretty equal footing compared to if you're sociology and doing well in that field and uh, uh, doing well in your pre-medical prerequisites, I, I think you're on equal footing with the kids who are like bio, 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 pre-med, pre-med, pre-med. And I, I, I like this kind of freedom that that knowledge gives to kids because honestly, like a lot of my, I mean, m m many of my patients are, are um, uh, at least in the outpatient setting, it's mostly psychology work that I do. And so um, very little of it has to do with like this receptor and this ligand on the cell surface. And, uh, you know, I think we need more people with like sociology and, and anthropology and um, uh, psychology backgrounds in medicine. So I kind of say pick something that you really enjoy as your major. If it happens to be biology, great. If it's not biology, make sure that we're working your pre-medical prerequisites into it. Yeah, I think there is that urban myth that you have to be a science major into in order to be successful to be accepted into medical school, which is absolutely false. Um, I, I I do recall seeing art majors. Um, I think it was a music few music majors at Stanford who were admitted. I think the challenge not being a science major is just how do you fit those prereqs into your curriculum while yeah, yeah. you're uh, obviously as a chemistry or biology major, more than likely you're going to fulfill all the prereqs just because you have to take these classes in order to graduate. But um, that, that was really, I think, the challenge. But it was always interesting to me uh, to see non-science majors because it, I think their story was, how am I connecting medicine into music? And I think there's a lot of work being done now with medicine and music and I think brain activity and things like that. So I'm, I'm kind of remembering a few a successful applicants that had that background and that interest who applied to Stanford. And it was really um, pretty different, you know, from many other applications. So in a way, that's how to, they sort of stood out. Um, but I think going back to what you were sh sharing earlier, there is also that intensity and duration that is important uh, in terms of admission. So how long have you committed yourself to the activity and how many hours a week have you been um, committing yourself to the lab or to whatever community service you're involved mm -hmm. in? So those are things we consider as well in admissions, um, the intensity and, intensity and duration. Uh, of one's um, experiences, which I think goes back to what you're mentioning earlier about leadership. I've always shared with students that um, leadership is not necessarily the, the titles. I think there's a lot of people who are the president of the pre-med club or whatever it is, and they're not really doing a whole lot as the, as the president. Mm -hmm. You may have an 
a regular member who's moving the organization forward. And so I, I, I kind of want, I, I, I always um, try to emphasize to applicants to think about the characteristics of leadership. How do you identify a problem, which might be in your laboratory, might be on your campus, in your community? What sort of initiative do you take to come up with a solution to this problem? And maybe in the end, uh, you end up leaving your legacy. That's really hard to do. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the concept is simple enough, but it's a lot of work to do that. So I used to tell a lot of the undergrads at Berkeley. So Berkeley, uh, obviously, it's a very big school. Um, they don't have uh, like a student-run health first aid program or anything. And I used to use it as an example to the students. I said, well, here's this. There's um, football games. It attracts a lot of people. Um, Maybe starting a a first aid or a pre-med society that can uh, administer first aid at huge events such as football games that are student run. Um, And now you've left your legacy. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of a real simple uh, example that I try to share with them. But imagine the work that would go into doing something like mm-hmm. this is enormous. And how do you balance that with still trying to do well academically um, and, and, and things of that nature? That's that's the rub. I think uh, when I when I first meet with my kids, I, 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 I caution them that I uh, I'm, I'm really kind of expecting a lot out of them, maybe because I know that, you know, we as humans can do a lot. But at the same time, I have to be respectful of all of their obligations. Uh, I think over the years, what's uh, what's kind of come like the natural conclusion from all of this is uh, to, to, to use the overused term synergy um, to try to find efforts that align together and uh, make a more cohesive uh, experience for the student, but also one that's probably like in terms of time commitment less uh, uh, so that they can accomplish all of these things. And so um, how do I, how do I, you know, what examples do I have of this? I think um, uh, probably one of the clearest examples is uh, relates to research and advocacy. And so, uh, and, and also shadowing and, and clinical experiences and that's um uh, there's this kind of like uh if you can find it do it opportunity which is clinical translational research um this is a type of research so instead of being like at a bench you are um uh, working either in a clinic or part of like a research group. And um, what you do is you you do research related directly or um, one step away from direct patient care. And so that might mean interviewing patients and trying to see if they would um, would uh, take part in a study that your your investigator is coordinating or um, going and getting samples or taking or doing surveys with uh, with patients who are part of the study. And so so in that regard, what you're doing is you're a contributing to research. B, you have a direct interface with patients in a clinic, um, and C, if it's a particular condition or disease.
disease that is like motivating or, or like beyond the like cerebral interesting to you, um, then there's a significant amount of opportunity for advocacy here. And um, there's this like magic combination that uh, a handful of my, my kids have, have been able to put together, which involves literally clinical translational research, scratching that itch of research. So they, they, they enjoy that part of it, um, the clinical interactions. And so they're able to do that and they enjoy that part of it. And then stemming advocacy efforts from it. So either um, uh, joining a group, the existing group that's related to advocating on behalf of those patients or the, like the under treatment of them um, and uh, or founding their own organization related to that. And those students have had very good success in this medical school application process. And at the end of the day, it is a lot of work, but it, it kind of uh, is, is it surrounds this core of um, of, of, a, of a disease or an experience. And it allows them to to do the research, to do the patient interaction, to do the advocacy and leadership development in, in a way that's respectful, I feel, of their their obligation, their existing academic obligations. And so if that is an opportunity um, that students can achieve, then, then I would certainly aim for that. It's easier to do if you are close to a hospital um, and there is re- and that's a, like a research hospital. So there's like clinical trials or clinical investigations or clinical translational work being done at that hospital. But it's not impossible if you're far away from that. And so um, typically summers might be an opportunity for that uh, versus term time research. And so um, I, 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 I've kind of moved away from suggesting like bench research for kids just because it's um, it's. It's great. And if you like it, excellent. I'm not going to push you away or recommend you go away from it. It's just that I feel that um, it's uh, the, the experiences of the kids I've worked with uh, have found it very fulfilling to do this clinical translational work. And I take that feedback and I, I give it back to the kids who I'm like newly working with to say, I suggest this. Why don't you investigate it and see if you like it? Um, and if it can work, I think it leads at the end to satisfaction, but also maybe a little bit more sleep. Um, and maybe a little bit more time to focus on a class that they're not doing as well and as they want to. Um, and then also when they interview, they're able to pull this, this information together and um, have almost an identity in the application process that they otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think um, a lot of the first-year students who have I've had a chance to um, work with in the past. I've, I've sort of encouraged them to focus on that transition into college. I think going from a high school to college, it's a huge uh, step. Um, sometimes we don't realize how homesick we could become mm-hmm. or that we don't get along with our roommate. And I'm the type of person that needs to be in my room and my desk studying in order to be successful, but I can't stand looking at my roommate. <laughs> So I'm having to leave. So I try to encourage a lot of the students to adjust to that transition to college before jumping into all these different activities that would be available. Uh, I like the uh, the fact that you brought up um, that research doesn't always have to be done at a large you know, institution. Certainly there's going to be students who attend uh, colleges and universities that don't have a medical school, that are not huge institutions, that's okay because I think it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about um, leadership. Um, When they go home for the summers, how are they thinking about 
hmm, I need to develop some clinical experiences or I'm interested in research. So they go home and they may be at a city that's huge and has a lot of like different opportunities for them to get involved. So it's showing to me that they're taking that initiative to come up with some um, activities and leadership uh, opportunities for themselves, even though they're not at a large institution. And sometimes I, uh, I often wonder, knowing that a student attends a college or university where there's ample opportunities for so many different things to get involved in that they're not involving themselves. Exactly. Exactly. It becomes like a a one dimensional applicant. And it really makes me wonder, well, are they really interested in helping others? They're they're not doing anything other than studying all day. And yes, I would expect that you have a high GPA because that's all you've been doing is studying, but it doesn't demonstrate that you have an interest or passion in helping others and helping others could be as simple as tutoring programs, um, you know, big brother, big sister programs, things of that nature. So just going back to something you said earlier um, about the, like each college or university's advising programs, I think a pattern I've seen, I'm not sure if I actually, I don't like the pattern at all, but even at very small, uh, highly resourced colleges and even at very uh, high endowment research universities, pre-medical advising has shifted to that junior, senior, here's your checklist, come check in with us um, at the end of your sophomore year, the beginning of your junior your year. Don't forget to do these things. And here's your requirements. And it's become very impersonal. Uh, and um, even at some of the schools that have the better programs, uh, uh, I, I still feel there's a lot lacking. And I feel that it's unfortunate. And it's, it's almost like a corporatization of the advising process. And just to say one size fits all that's here. So um, I think for those kids who are kind of in their early years um, of college, or even in later years and thinking of like, whether they're going to go into medicine. Um, the stuff that I would say for them to think about that their schools are not going to think about is, is A, is that planning ahead for um, all the classes that they need to take? Um, B, is uh, thinking strategically about those faculty that they are going to be taking these classes with. And I, 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 one of the problems, unfortunately, in academia is that professors are, are all overworked with research and teaching and students are all overworked with their studying. Um, but uh, uh, the expectation that a professor is going to be able to provide a substantive letter of evaluation for you after one semester in a class, um, I, I don't think that works anymore. Um, I think the classes are far too large. I'm advising my kids to like think creatively and to plan ahead. And so uh, with that in mind, and so I, I will do like a, a census of their faculty and I'll say, who who of these faculty do you think you, you really get along well with and who do you think could advocate for you? <clears throat> and then what we'll do is... Um, We'll take that that smaller list and we'll see, are there classes that they can take as a junior um, or as a senior uh, uh, with those faculty so that they can, and maybe even smaller classes or, or small like seminar-based classes where that faculty member can see them more and have more interface with them. And that gets that additional level of depth. Um, and if possible, sometimes those students can even do research or do small projects with those faculty if they have the capacity for it and there's the opportunity. Um, and, and that 
provides an additional level of depth of understanding in those letters because I always hated to see these like <clears throat> really wonderful looking applicants. And then you see the letter of recommendation and it's it's thin and it's thin not because the student is like not contributing or not able to contribute. It's just that the really the amount of time they had with that faculty member is so limited. Is that is that your perception as well from the other side of the fence? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if this changes also, uh, and this is just me guessing, uh, how much social media has sort of um, played a part and in influenced um, the changes in pre-med admissions, because I think, you know, a lot of uh, advising offices have Facebook pages or, you know, just rely on listservs or whatever the case may be, Instagram, Instagram pages to upload information uh, versus, you know, that one-to-one contact uh, that I think was more prevalent um, years ago versus maybe now. Um, you know, my experience being at Berkeley and, and, and it being a big school, um, I oftentimes told students to also – uh, see if they could get to know the um, the graduate uh, student who is involved in maybe being a TA for the professor uh, or maybe in the lab. Um, maybe they could do some special projects. Um, co-signing letters of references were always okay, but I think uh, – a chat with a grad student writing a letter of reference is they have very limited experience in actually writing mm-hmm. letters of reference. Um, and I don't know if they always checked in with the faculty member so that he or she could review this letter and really sign it or they just signed it, you know, to, to, um, b- because the grad student asked them, uh, to co-sign the letter. So it, it's a challenge, I think. Um, but you know, it, it, it's something that is important if you can, um, to, to be able to work closer with faculty, uh, on these uh, research projects, for sure. Uh, that's probably like a red flag in admissions if I, I would see an applicant who volunteered somewhere or you know did research for a year or two and there was no letter from that you know, PI or the supervisor, it really made me wonder what what was going on with this. Um, I understand if they moved on to a different college or university or different, you know, employment and they lost contact. But generally, you know, we all have email now and it's relatively easy, I think, to maintain contact. So um, those were some red flags that off the top of my head, I, I remember wondering, and there were a few instances, I think, where uh, sometimes an admissions committee member would have to reach out to the PI or the supervisor to clarify something that they wrote in a letter of recommendation for an applicant. But it was really rare that that would happen. Um, But it's just too many other really good applicants. If there's a question mark over an application and there's multiple question marks that start to accumulate, then you're like, yeah, she's going to be wonderful, but not at our school. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, they were describing something and it just wasn't making sense to committee members. So um, I think that was oftentimes the, the case why in those rare instances they had to reach out. 
for so more or clarification. So June, we've got uh, maybe uh, a little bit over 15 minutes left. Okay. And so um, what I thought we could do is just kind of do a rundown of the, the application process. And if we want to intersperse some of our red flags into this, uh, maybe make it uh, a, a pithy red flag field for us. So um, so typically applicants are going to be asked for uh, four-ish uh, sometimes five I've seen, including the school's committee letter, letter of recommendations. They'll need their MCAT score. Uh, they will need their transcript and they will need their AMCAS, which is this like beast of an application that has uh, their biographical information. They have to hand enter all their grades, um, which has to be verified by the AMCAS folks. Uh, they will enter. They have a long personal statement, uh, three activities that they have to describe in depth. And then I want to say up to 15 total activities that they can describe uh, in shorter, like shorter depth. Um, and that is all uh, uh, able to be submitted at the end of May. So that, that changes from no one. You have to have all of those in order to apply this year a little bit. Some of some of the MCAT waving, uh, some of the letter waving. But uh, for in general, you know, going forward, probably all of these are still going to be recommended. So so of those things. Uh, where are some of the biggest red flags that you see? Um, I think, well, number one, like be aware of your deadline dates. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as you mentioned, um, an applicant to medical school will have access to filling out an AMCAS application in the month of May, and they really cannot submit and pay for it until early in June. So I've always encouraged everybody to apply in the month of June. That's considered early. Um, you, July, okay, but after July, um, it, it can be uh, challenging uh, in terms of the timing of your application for it to be reviewed early on. Um, so just be aware that every med school has different deadline dates to submit an application, uh, an AMCAS application. Um, and that's sometimes where some applicants get um, a little confused about. Mm -hmm. I think um, personal statements um, are interesting. Uh, they're not easy to do. It's not something you can do the night before and then submit your application. I think on average, applicants go through 10, 12 drafts before they come to a final draft. And you certainly don't want to make it sound like it's a, a uh, what do you call it, um, diary. <laughs> and, and, and sharing uh, way too much about yourself, but it really focus on that um, idea of what, why medicine, you know, that's what I just want to know. What is it about being a physician and the life experiences you've had that led up to making up this final decision here? Um, choosing your medical schools, I think is an important piece of this. Um, I think on average, a lot of applicants, at least my time at Berkeley, were averaging 22, 25 applications. Um, and, and I think one thing, especially early on in your first year, start saving your money. It's a very expensive process to apply to med school, not just the applications themselves, but part of the application process are interviews. Now this past year with COVID, a lot of med schools obviously moved to a virtual interview, but I suspect that once we sort of get back to 
some sort of level of normalcy, they may want to start having in-person interviews again. So that might, that's going to mean jumping on a plane and flying out to the West coast or East coast or wherever. Um, and that could cost a lot of money, um, obviously with airplane tickets and things of that nature. So, um, I've always encouraged students to to start saving their money earlier uh, as they prepare. And I think one thing, alluding back to what you were mentioning earlier about students getting really involved in different activities, um, is something to consider that uh, life is not linear. And there is no reason to start med school immediately after you complete your uh, college uh, degree uh, if you want to take some time off. And I've always encouraged students to consider taking one, two years off. I think in the whole scheme of life, one, two years off. It's not a big deal. It's not really significant. But what sort of life experiences can you get those couple of years off, maybe doing Peace Corps or something like that, that will help you to become a more uh, stronger applicant when you're ready to apply to med school and, and you have much more insight about yourself and confirming that this is the right career for you. So I think there's some pressure sometimes that applicants feel that I have to start med school right after college. And that's not always necessarily true. I think in general, a lot of med schools, their ages uh, of the first year class have gone up a little bit more than in previous years. So I, I think around 23, 24 is maybe the average age of first year med students nowadays. So obviously they've taken a couple of years off to pursue different activities that were really interesting to them. I think that's uh, that's such an important point is uh, I think these kids who are kind of applying as juniors to junior, junior to senior summer um, are especially this last year been at a significant competitive disadvantage. And that bubble of uh, this is I'll talk about my red flags, then we can move into the coronavirus thing. But um, the uh, I, I, I think that's a red flag for me. It's like, what's the hurry? Right. So you're you've had three, three years. So your AMCAS application, if you apply between your junior and your senior year, your AMCAS application is essentially due at the end of your junior year. So you have your three years of college grades, three years of college experiences. You're missing one important summer and you feel like you're going to be competitive going up against kids who have been on this planet for more years than you probably doing substantive things as well, but for a longer period of time. I think those kids, the, 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 the rising seniors are really at an increasingly competitive disadvantage um, in this process. Really, this year, the worst disadvantage they've seen, but probably for several years from this point forward, that's that that's going to be the case. And I, I very strongly encourage my kids to apply either at the end of their senior year or um, uh, in the year after or take a gap year after. I, I think it's just an important thing. They're in such a hurry. Why? You know, and uh, and if they can't answer that question substantively uh, or persuasively, I, I, I go into my encouraging a gap year mode. I think for me, uh, red flags are um, uh, related to perfectionist tendencies in these applications. And so needing to know that that personal statement is perfect 
there's no perfect personal statement. Uh, there's a bell curve distribution of excellent personal statements. And very few of them are the ones that are going to make you cry at the end because they're excellent. And most kids don't have the life experiences to even generate that type of personal statement. They're so rare. And those kids, I feel that they, they've gone through enough to be able to write something like that. Um, and some of the personal statements are not very good. Uh, and um, it's relatively easy to see. But most kind of fit within this general like like you know one or two standard deviations from the the uh from the mean here in terms of how good they are and so i try to encourage my kids to write excellent personal uh uh personal statements but don't strive for perfection because it's just going to burn them out and if i sense that i'm like i'm i tell them i'm really worried because if you're spending this much time on one essay you've got all these supplements coming in mm -hmm. from all these uh, medical schools and you're just going to burn out as a result of this so um, I, I think as well, the um, uh, one of the things I see is not budgeting enough time for MCAT preparation. Um, just thinking like, yeah, I'm a biology student. I've taken my pre-med prereqs. I can go into this test and you will get smashed by all the kids who put in uh, like months to a year of preparation. So so trying to integrate MCAT preparation into um, probably at least starting the year before you plan to take the test um, and ensuring that you have an MCAT score when you submit your AMCAS application, I think is very important. Um, uh, because if you, if you hold off on that, there's a, there's a risk that uh, school's not going to send you a secondary, uh, um, because they're waiting to see that score. Who yeah. knows if it's going to be good or not. Um, and I think one of the other things that, that I, I tend to see that's risky for kids is, um, uh, not really, this is very much what, what you've been saying is not really like thinking introspectively about like why they're doing this in the first place and where's the drive for it. Is it an internal drive for this career or is it a lot of external mm -hmm. drive and they're just doing, going through the motions mm -hmm. and, um, that I feel you can pick up in activities and the personal statement pretty quickly, mm -hmm. um, going through the motion type of kid. And then I think for the final thing, it's, um, uh, uh, this last year, so so um, right out the gate, so so the folks who process the AMCAS kind of built in a buffering period this last year before they they released their application. So even though you submitted your application like the end of May, beginning of June, it was held by AMCAS for several weeks um, and for the verification purpose for your transcript. Uh, but then also because of disadvantages that people uh, differentially experience due to coronavirus, and then they released them to the medical schools, like broke the system and. And overwhelmed everybody. And so then if you were like a week late in submitting your AMCAS uh, or you submitted it after that deadline um, a bit, you were in the second tier and already there's tens of thousands of kids in that first tier. And so I feel like not budgeting enough time and not respecting the deadlines is important. And that goes for like requesting letters of recommendation because these people have to write the letters. Oftentimes they have to be submitted to your school. Then your school has to collect them. And then if you have like a pre-medical committee, they'll integrate the letters into their letter. And so all of that takes a lot of time. So just be very mindful of your school's calendar, but also be mindful of the AMCAS calendar. And then over the summer, 
um, after you submit your AMCAS, just understanding now many schools have moved to this automated secondary. So you, your AMCAS is like this primary application and then you send your AMCAS out. In, in my day, back in my day, you, you have to go through a screening process to get a secondary, um, but now it gets sent to most people and uh, most schools send it to most applicants. And so um, you would better be prepared if you send an applications out to 20, 25 schools on your initial AMCAS this last year is probably close to 35, 40, um, that, that's how many secondaries you have to complete. And that's a lot of writing. Some of those essays are like 3,000 characters and sometimes they're unique to the school um, and you can't like retrofit or reuse or, you know, rejigger an application essay from another school for this new secondary. And uh, just the amount of time to budget for it, you just have to be like, you have to be respectful of that. Um, so in our closing minutes, um, Maybe what we can talk about is, uh, is, is at least for the, the folks who are probably going to be listening to this is the um, uh, they're going to be impacted by coronavirus. Either they are undergraduates in their early years and they their labs have closed or their shadowing experiences don't exist or their applicants right now uh, in this upcoming cycle or next year's cycle who are wondering how this impacts them. And so John, just kind of going through this recently, what, what words of guidance do you have for the for these kids? Well, you know, uh, we've been emphasizing this last minute or two about taking your time and maybe reconsidering the idea of uh, applying a little bit later. Um, there were probably a few, more than a few applications I read this past year that if they had just waited another year or two uh, versus applying this year in the middle of COVID, I think they would have been a much stronger applicant. And so it's, um, you know, tough as a reapplicant to be admitted to a medical school. And med schools actually know that you are a reapplicant to their school because you have to indicate that on your AdCast application. So um, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because this, the different colleges and universities I'm noticing are, are, are dealing with COVID very differently. And I think um, one thing you mentioned earlier about like transcripts, for example, um, it's important for an applicant to understand that, number one, you're not the only student at that college or university that's requesting official transcripts to be sent somewhere. But now on top of this, you got another layer of all the uh, staff working from home. So what used to be relatively easy for a staff to take care of in an office, it's taking longer now for staff to process a lot of like requests mm -hmm. or trans official transcripts to be sent where they're trying to do it from their home computer. So, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges there. I don't know if there's a, there's certainly not a simple answer, <laughs> I think, to, to what's going on right now. Um, I just I'm looking forward to hopefully this upcoming year we're inching closer and closer to some sort of normalcy and that students can finally start going back to lab. I know some labs have opened up, though very limited, and they have only let one or two students in the lab and they're scheduling times for individuals to come into a lab to do research, for example. I'm not sure about like a lot of the volunteer at health things like that uh, nature, how that's all working out. I, I doubt if a lot of students are able to go in and going 
again, going back to like insurance reasons and things of that nature. So um, I think we're still going to be challenged uh, this upcoming year. So I guess my last thing would be um, consider, you know, uh, waiting before you apply and see what you can do to strengthen your application in the meantime. I, I say sage words. I think uh, uh, I share those opinions too. I suspect that um, just how you know our, our universities here in Boston are going, um, it's probably going to be another similar year. And so mm-hmm. I don't see much difference between this application cycle and last application cycle. Yeah. Um, if anything, what's going to happen is probably application numbers may either stay steady or go up. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the the reasons is there's nothing else for people to do. So yeah. it's for them to apply. Number two is they want to go and help people. So that's going to drive things up. And number three is that uh, medical schools didn't increase their class size this year. So yeah. um, all those really wonderful candidates that, that didn't get an offer of admission or perhaps applied and got into a school that they like, thanks, but I don't want to go here. <clears throat> when they, they may reapply. And so that's going to swell that applicant pool. So I love this idea of like, take your time. It's okay. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have some normalcy? And if you wait a little bit, things may start to look a little bit more normal. Um, and I would suspect not this cycle. It's not going to return this cycle, but maybe yeah. next cycle we'll start to see some normalcy. Yeah. I, think for the, um, I think clinical experiences have dried up. Uh, there's some interesting Zoom shadow opportunities yeah. uh, that some of my students have gotten involved in. And um, in, in my clinic, I'd be more than happy to have kids come and, uh, and Zoom shadow us just turn off your camera, turn on, you know, mute yourself and, and, uh, and you're, you're shadowing and it's, it's yeah. no, little to no impact on anyone. Um, and it's safe for the families that you're treating and it's also your patients and, and you know, you can maintain, you know, like social distancing. Um, it was hard to come by, but you never know if you, you, you can get that until you ask right. and you're going to be told no so many t- times in your life for, for, and be rejected so many ways. It's okay to like kind of build a tougher skin by reaching out to clinicians and say, do you mind if I shadow you? I'm very interested in, you know, like rheumatology or orthopedic surgery. And is there an opportunity for me to do some, some outpatient shadowing with you um, for your zoom clinics? And um, you'll get shut down by a bunch of people, but someone someday is going to say, yeah, why not? Um, and particularly if you're associated with a hospital or you're like pediatrician, uh, your own pediatrician might be able to connect you with someone. Um, there's a lot of opportunities, but you don't know that they exist until you explore and see that they exist. Uh, I think for the, for research, it's very hard. Um, and, um, I've been in, I have one student who's just like really, really tremendous kid, um, limited both geographically because they're not in their, they're in their home country away from their international university. And so um, how can they do research with a faculty member there? Um, And uh, other people whose labs have just essentially shut down are not going to reopen and let alone to like a college kid, but to the, even the people who maintain like the mouse or the cell culture lines, um, they're having restricted access too. So, um, you have to be creative. You may come up with an independent research project. If you're comfortable with like bioinformatics or like epidemiology, there's plenty of like projects you can do on your own. Um, maybe you can reach out to one of your faculty members for some like, uh, like ad hoc guidance on it. Um, wet bench research, very difficult to do. And so you may have to kind of, 
shift your research alignment to something else or use this time to do something related to like a nonprofit work or advocacy work and then pick your research back up later. Um, if you do have a lot of capacity and extra time and things like that, um, it's also a time to think about how can I contribute? What are some ways that I can develop either a program or an initiative or uh, insert myself into an existing program or initiative that's going to have some ability to impact people? So use your time wisely. Um, you think creatively. And, and uh, if you come up with one summer plan, you should be coming up with two or three or four summer plans mm -hmm. simply because it's really difficult to predict what's going to be canceled or not. It's an issue that affects both high school students I work with and the pre-medical students I work with. They're like, this program doesn't exist anymore. So what am I going to do? And I say, well, what's your plan B? I don't have a plan B. So let's work on making a plan B for you. Um, and then the other thing I think as well is like, it's really hard to interface with faculty via Zoom. And I feel that their medical schools are just going to have to accept that the letters that are coming out this year are going to be different and that uh, some schools have in class teaching and some schools don't and they can't penalize students. I trust them somewhat, but I don't trust them fully to accept that. And so students need to be able to um, manage their risks here and come up with a strategy to help increase that interface with that faculty so that the, that's the substantiveness of that letter can be conveyed. Um, and then I think the final thing for me is, um, you know, just uh, um, stand back from this. It's a really stressful period for a lot of people because of coronavirus, but added on to that is this application to medical school process. And so um, it's okay to stand back. It's okay to take a deep breath. It's okay to pause and revisit those experiences that you have um, and do the most meaningful ones, but also the ones you can actually do practically um, and focus on those right now. Um, and if it means that you have to delay applying for a year or two, that is a thousand percent fine and acceptable. So, um, June, before we go, anything else that you would like to chat about? Uh, no, I think, um, you know, our, our time is up for this episode, but I'm sure, sure we could dive deeply into another episode of this. Excellent. So, so Jun, thank you. And thank you all for tuning in to Just Admit It. Um, catch up on all of our previous episodes by visiting the Just Admit It podcast page. Uh, a bunch of our colleagues have some really great stuff that's there. Um, and be sure to bookmark our Ivy Wise knowledge base. And you can, uh, if you do that, you can stay up to date with um, the information we provide about higher ed and our guidance for that. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, all of the major social mo media modalities. Uh, and, uh, and stay tuned for our next episode in which we'll discuss the business school admissions process um, and thanks everyone for, for tuning in today and thank you so much June for your expert advice anytime hey have a blast <laughs> bye everyone bye everyone <laughs>